a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program exists for the purpose of encouraging you to think as clearly and independently as you possibly can. You see, truth isn't something that's handed to us by an authority figure. If you're serious about understanding the world as it really is, that means you're going to have to go after the truth yourself. I'm not saying that I will hand it all to you. I'll just, you know, dump a bucket full of it in your lap. No, I'm actually just going to point you in the right direction and uh, let you continue that journey until you're satisfied you understand things as best you can. So, in other words, you don't have to agree. That's never a necessity or an implied, you know, agreement. Well, now, you know, you listen to the show, so therefore you have to, you know, defer to everything I say. I want to, I want you, I want to make you think, but I sure don't want to tell you what to think. So, with those ground rules in mind, let's get started today. Great sponsors make this show possible, including Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, also Monticello College, Life Saving Food, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and GovernYourCrypto.com. You'll find a nice link to each one of these sponsors in my show notes, which you'll find at the com. So I saw a clip yesterday of uh, Dr. Fauci, and I don't know who he was being questioned by. It looked like he was being, you know, uh, <clears throat> I guess he was being questioned by some kind of official legislative committee. And it was just a short little clip but his attitude sparked something in me that I was like, oh, man, I, I try to live my life with as little hatred or as little um, contempt for other people as possible. And then I see a clip of Dr. Fauci saying, why are we even talking about about lockdowns? We never locked down. China locked down. But we never locked down. And I think to myself, man, somebody could make Dr. Fauci Christmas ornaments and I bet they would sell like hotcakes. Not because everybody loves Dr. Fauci all that much, but uh, just because the, the sight of him hanging there on the tree would just, I don't know, it might make some people feel better. Nonetheless, that's the closest I came to feeling some full-on just hate for the guy. I was just mm, fed up with that smarmy, I'm a bureaucrat, I know what's best for you attitude. And, and to sit there and question, well, we never locked down. Why are we even talking about lockdowns? That's tough. It, it stirs an anger in me that I sometimes don't even know is there until it starts to surface. And I just, I don't want to live with hatred in my heart or in my mind. Now, keeping your heart and mind free from hatred, that's a pretty serious undertaking. But it's a very worthwhile undertaking. And I want to start off today with an essay from Barry Brownstein. This is from his Mind, Mindset Shifts Substack. Hatred will destroy you. What the Holodomor teaches us today. Very important historical lesson here, but an even more important sentiment about don't let hate dictate, you know, who you are. Don't let, be, don't let that be the definition of, of, uh, of how, you, how you define yourself. Well, this is what I'm against. Barry Brownstein writes, The Holodomor, or Death by Hunger, is the name given to the 1930s terror famine in Ukraine. Leading up to the famine were the murder and exile of Ukrainian farmers, kulaks, and the collectivization of farms under Stalin. 
Robert Conquest, in his book Harvest of Sorrows, lays out the sequence of events, quote, a famine which struck all the grain-producing areas of European Russia, and especially Ukraine, reached a climax in the summer of 1933. It began years earlier, however, when Stalin, in the winter of 1929 and 1930, dispossessed, exiled, and killed millions of the more prosperous peasants and harassed the remaining peasantry into surrendering land, animals, and tools into collective farms. It was made inevitable in the second and final wave of collectivization in the winter of 1930 to 1931, when a disorganized and disillusioned peasantry was effectively enslaved, end quote. Now, the death toll was beyond imaginable. Conquest writes of a Ukrainian farm population between 20 and 25 million, about 5 million died. That's a quarter to a fifth of the population there. The casualty rate varied considerably by area and even village from 10% to 100%. Time after time, officials tell of entering villages with few or no survivors and seeing the dead in their houses. In villages of 3,000 to 4,000 people, only 45 to 80 people were left. Now, Barry Brownstein says, to learn from the Holodomor, I turned to the remarkable Russian novelist and journalist Vasily Grossman. Grossman's perhaps the greatest freedom fighter you've never heard of. He exposed the common roots of the totalitarian horrors of communism and fascism, and he also revealed with unparalleled insights the mindset that ordinary people adopted to enable their oppressors. His novel, Life and Fate, is one of the outstanding novels of the 20th century. Barry Brownstein says, I've explored that novel in four previous essays. He has links to each one of them. Why good people enable totalitarians. It takes a village of bureaucrats to implement despotism. Why there's a civic and moral duty to oppose tyrannical bureaucracies. And a Soviet dissident explains American censorship. Now, up until his death in 1964... Grossman was writing his last novel and testament, Everything Flows. In it, Grossman delivers viscerally compelling narratives of the Holonomor. His insights reach us across time, warning of the consequences of events we can observe today. Today we must learn from the past to prevent the worst tomorrow. <clears throat> so he says, as you read the following excerpts from Grossman's vivid description of the Holonomor, I offer these questions for reflection. Today, which groups of people are politicians, academics, experts, and the media teaching us to hate? What groups may be targeted during a future economic depression? What justifications for hatred are we adopting which normalizes the dehumanization of others? What consequences do you imagine are possible when groups of people are dehumanized? Now, the destruction begins with attacks. I hope you recognize, you know, the significance here. If somebody starts proposing, oh, we ought to tax the unvaccinated. Okay, listen to this. The murder and exile of the farmers began with a special tax. The Kulaks believed complying with the tax would save them from further harm. Grossman writes, they paid up. Somehow they found the money. Then they were taxed a second time. Anything they could, they sold. They believed that if they paid up, the state would be merciful. So special taxes were the first step. Arrests followed, beginning with selected fathers of farming families. The village Soviets would then each draw up a list of names. It was on the basis of these lists that people were arrested. And who drew up the lists? Well, a group of three, a troika. A group of three ordinary, muddle-headed people <clears throat> determined who was to live and who was to die. 
there were no holds barred. There were bribes. There were scores to be settled because of a woman or some other past grievance. Often it was the poorest peasants who were listed as kulaks, while the richer peasants managed to buy themselves off. And when it came to drawing up lists, the evil committed by the honest people was no less than the evil committed by the bad people. What matters is that the very existence of these lists was unjust and evil. After fathers' entire families were rounded up, the OP or the OGPU, a precursor to the KGB, couldn't do the job on its own, so party activists were mobilized too. Grossman tells the terrible tale. The activists were just villagers like anyone else, and they were people everyone knew. But they all seemed to lose their minds. They seemed dazed, crazed, as if they'd fallen under some spell. They threatened people with guns. They, they called small children kulak brats. You're bloodsuckers, they yelled. Bloodsuckers! Now, the activists were ordinary villagers sympathetic to the state and convinced by state propaganda to hate their neighbors. Again, from Grossman's book, for the main part, the activists were people from our own village. They were admittedly under a spell. They'd convinced themselves that if the kulaks were evil, that it was best not to even touch them. They would not even sit down to eat with one of those parasites. The kulaks' towels were unclean. Their children were disgusting. Their young women were worse than lice. The activists looked on those who were being dispossessed as if they were cattle or swine. Everything about the kulaks was vile. They were vile in themselves. They had no souls. They stank. They were full of sexual diseases. And worst of all, they were enemies of the people and the exploiters of labor of others. Unaffected by the violence, Barry Brownstein says that they inflicted, they, as they drove the kulaks from their homes, these activists could just as well have been driving a flock of geese down the road. Through the voice of one of his characters, Grossman explains the relentless Soviet propaganda. Destroy the kulaks and utopia will follow. Now, i got to tap the brakes here because we are coming up fast on a break, but we're going to come back to this in a few moments. And again, my goal here is not to uh, generate hatred towards Stalin or the Russians or anybody else, not even towards the people who right now at this moment are working to oppress us, to convert us, the freedom-minded, into kulaks. This is more of a cautionary tale about don't be the kind of person who can be manipulated through hate or through fear to do the kind of things that were done in the Holodomor. I know it sounds easy, but like I related earlier, I was having a perfectly peaceful day and suddenly realized, wow, I'm grinding my teeth just from watching Dr. Fauci, you know, make a inane statement. I got to do better. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to mention the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. Although, her specialty, her expertise could extend to any of my listeners within the state of Utah or the state of Idaho. If you happen to be looking for a mortgage from a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage, contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They have the knowledge, the experience, the stability, and the clout to get you the loan you need without delay. Call 435-703-4522 for more information. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm, I'm continuing on with this, uh, <clears throat> this essay by Barry Brownstein, warning how hatred will destroy you. 
and what we can learn from the Holodomor today, even though it took place back in the early 1930s, there's still some very valuable lessons. So this is how, this is how the, <clears throat> excuse me, this is how the, the, the um, characters in Grossman's book describe the relentless propaganda, destroy the kulaks, utopia will follow. He says, during meetings and special briefings from films, books, articles, and radio broadcasts from Stalin himself, I kept hearing one and the same thing. That kulaks are parasites. That kulaks burn bread and murder children. The fury of the masses had to be ignited against them. Yes, those were the words. It was proclaimed that the kulaks must be destroyed as a class, every accursed one of them. I, too, began to fall under this spell. It seems that every misfortune was because of the kulaks. If we were to annihilate them immediately, then happy days would dawn for us all. Now, Barry Brownstein says some of the activists were driven by hatred. Others merely obeyed. Still others sought to steal from their victims. Back to Grossman's book, there were all sorts of us, there were all sorts among us, rather, activists. There were those who truly believed, who hated the parasites, and who really did do all they could do for the poorest peasants. And there were those with selfish aims of their own. And then there were those, the majority, who were simply obeying orders. People willing to beat their own mothers and fathers to death if that was what they were told to do. The most terrible of all were not those who believed in the happy life that would set in after the kulaks were done away with. No, the beasts that seem wildest are not always the most dangerous. The most terrible of all were the ones with selfish aims of their own. They never stopped talking about political awareness, and all the time they were settling personal scores, stealing and plundering, destroying the lives of others. They destroyed others just to get a few possessions for a mere pair of boots. Now, Barry Brownstein says it was chillingly easy to add a person to the list of kulaks to destroy. Just write a denunciation. You don't even have to put your signature to it. Just say that your neighbor owned three cows or that he had hired hands working for him, and there, you've set him up as a kulak. Villagers who survived the purging of the kulaks were not prepared for what followed. Now that there were no more kulaks, everyone was forced to join the collective farm. There were meetings that lasted all night long with endless cursing and shouting. Politics swamped all life. Rights were minimal under communism, but even those rights were stripped if they were used to the detriment of the socialist revolution. Having eliminated farmers whose knowledge and incentives produced bountiful harvests, the natural consequence was famine. And we all thought that no fate could be worse than that of the kulaks. How wrong we were. In the villages, the axe fell on everyone. No one was big enough or small enough to be, sta to be safe. And Grossman explains how execution by famine started with lies. How did it all happen? After the dispossession of the kulaks, the area of land under cultivation dropped sharply, and so did the crop yield. But everyone kept reporting that the kulaks, that without the kulaks, rather, our life had immediately started to blossom. The village Soviet lied to the district, the district to the province, and the province to Moscow. Everyone wanted Stalin to rejoice in the belief that a happy life had begun and the whole of his dominion would soon be awash with collective farm grain. The time came for the first collective farm harvest. Everything seemed in order. Moscow determined the quotas for grain deliveries from each province, and the provinces determined the quota for each district. And our village was given a quota it couldn't have fulfilled in ten years. Now, Barry Brownstein says unfilled quotas triggered Soviet reprisals. Where was it then? This ocean of collective farm grain. It must have been hidden away. Idlers, parasites, kulaks who had not yet been liquidated. 
Now, the Kulaks had been deported, but their spirit endured. The Ukrainian peasant was enthralled to private property. State propaganda targeted a new group of peasants to hate, the sub-Kulaks. Sub-Kulaks were peasants labeled as hostile to collectivization. Grossman depicts what followed. Mothers and fathers wanted to save their children to put just a little grain to one side. They were told, you hate the motherland of socialism with a ferocious hatred. You want to sabotage the plan. You're nothing but vermin, you sub-Kulak parasites. Terror fell upon villages. The authorities searched for that grain as if they were searching for bombs and machine guns. They stabbed the earth with bayonets and ramrods. They smashed floors and dug underneath them. They dug up vegetable gardens. Grossman's depiction is corroborated by Robert Conquest, who quotes a former activist, Lev Kopolev. I took part in this myself, scouring the countryside, searching for hidden grain, testing the earth with an iron rod for loose spots that might lead to buried grain. With the others, I emptied out the old folks' storage chests, stopping my ears to the children's crying and the women's wails. For I was convinced that I was accomplishing the great and necessary transformation of the countryside, that in the days to come the people who lived there would be better off for it. Now, finding grain was futile, since there were no silos. Instead, enforcers acted out of ignorance of farming. The grain was simply dumped on the ground with sentries standing guard all around it. And by the beginning of winter, the grain was soaking and beginning to rot. The Soviet authorities didn't have enough tarpaulins to cover the, to protect the peasants' grain. There was no food. There was just more lies. When the grain was requisitioned, by the way, the party activists were told the peasants would be fed by the state. That was a lie. Not a single grain was given to the hungry. Journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, who reported in uh, the early summer of 1933 on the devastation, was quoted by Conquest. On a recent visit to the Northern Caucasus and the Ukraine, I saw something of the battle that is going on between the government and the peasants. The battlefield is as desolate as in any war and stretches wider, stretches over a large part of Russia. On the one side, millions of starving peasants, their bodies often swollen from lack of food, on the other, soldier members of the GPU carrying out the instructions of the dictatorship of the proletariat. They had gone over the country like a swarm of locusts and taken away everything edible. They had shot or exiled thousands of peasants, sometimes whole villages. They'd reduced some of the most fertile land in the world to a melancholy desert. Now, Grossman's depiction is heart-wrenching. No footsteps but the footsteps of famine. Famine never slept. First thing in the morning, children were crying in every hut, asking for bread. And what were their mothers to give them? Snow? There was no help to be had from anyone. The party officials just kept on repeating, You shouldn't have lazed about like that. You should have worked harder. Now, I'm going to skip ahead just because I'm running out of time here, but this essay is so worth your time. And Barry Brownstein asks you to consider, imagine if hatred were to grip our country, maybe 10 years in the future. America's mired in an economic depression. The population is further polarized. People are suffering and they're gripped by fear. A future populist president's going to need scapegoats. Would this president label the wealthy 1% or those with large retirement accounts or cryptocurrency holders as the cause of the suffering? When property is seized, what other rights crumble for us all? You get the message here, right? One's rights are only as strong as one's defense of the rights of others. So when you harbor hatred toward other people, your own humanity is destroyed. In Grossman's words, looking at his victim as other than human, he ceases to be human himself. He executes the human being inside his own self. His, he is his own executioner. Now, he has a great quote here from uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. 
I don't have time to read it, but I'll tell you, it's, it's well worth the time. But in the, in the midst of suffering beyond belief, the point is there's always a choice for love or hate. So let Grossman's message sink in, says Barry Brownstein. Every human being is capable of acting out of great hatred. Every human being is capable of acting out of great love. Every human being has the responsibility to choose. Our future is determined by the choices we make today. So again, not telling you what to think, but suggesting if you find yourself entertaining little spasms of hatred here and there, quickly and quietly strangle them and bury them behind the barn. They are not in your best interest. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My thanks to to Dixie Chiropractic. Sorry, that's Dr. Ward Wagner. DixieChiro.com is the website for Dixie Chiropractic. And if you or someone you love is dealing with pain, you should uh, definitely talk to them. This is especially for my listeners in southern Utah. Car accident injuries, you bet they can help you. If you have bulging herniated discs, Here's a $99 intro special, two treatments plus massage. If you have neuropathy, $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. You can get all the details at DixieChiro.com. When you get on the phone with them, when you're making your appointment, please let them know that you heard about this on this show. Well, the economic turbulence you may be sensing, if you don't watch the markets, you can probably still sense that things are a little bit awry economically. It's a real thing. Got a great article here from Dan Sanchez from the Foundation for Economic Education. The markets are yelling Mayday. And here's why. He says, an aircraft pilot about to crash will repeat the distress signal Mayday. And throughout the Maydays of this month so far, financial markets have been sending distress signals that may indicate an imminent crash of their own. The major stock market indices have all been experiencing steep sell-offs since May 4th, extending a decline that began around the end of March. Now, most analysts will attribute this sell-off to inflation fears, and traders aren't worried about how inflation will directly affect the economy, but how it will influence the decisions of a handful of bureaucrats. They fear that it will lead Federal Reserve officials to tighten the money spigot that's driving inflation in the first place. The Fed's money pumping has driven up prices across the board, but especially the prices of capital goods, the value of which is derived from the value of future consumption goods they will yield relative to the present consumption goods. Now, that ratio, as Austrian economists explain, is the basis for interest rates. So by distorting it with its money pumping, the Fed has artificially lowered interest rates so as to stimulate the economy. Now, this has been the Fed's standard operating procedure since its founding in 1913. But it has precipitously ramped it up since the advent of COVID in order to prop up an economy staggering under the burden of draconian governmental responses to the disease. If, as traders fear, the resulting inflation prompts the Fed to ease up on the money pumping, that will allow interest rates to rise by pulling out the props, holding up capital prices at artificially high levels relative to present consumption goods. Now, this upheaval in relative prices will translate into severe losses for most businesses, revealing that, lured by the Fed's artificial stimulus, they had overextended themselves. And that general spike in market losses is what's known as a crash and a recession. Now, Dan Sanchez says Wall Street is right to expect it, 
but it would be wrong to push for policies to forestall it as it often does. A recession is a tough time, but it's not a bad thing. The artificially inflated bubble, that was the bad thing. An economic bust is a necessary and beneficial repair of the economic distortion and damage that occurred during the deceptively pleasant artificial boom. The more you delay this repair, the more distortion and damage will accumulate, and the more painful later repair will have to be. Now, he's pretty blunt here. He says the bust we need will be extremely painful because the Fed has been money pumping at ever-increasing, unprecedented levels and without stint since the financial crisis of 2008. But kicking the can down the road even further will only mean an even more painful bust when the Fed finally does relent. And that's if we're lucky. If the Fed never relents, its policy will eventually result in hyperinflation, which can be a civilization killer. So Dan Sanchez says the market is crying out Mayday. Let it crash. And then let it rebuild and ascend sustainably under its own power. The government got us into this mess, but only the market can get us out. And as the poets say, the only way out is through. I understand there's a fair amount of economic jargon in there that may not make sense to everybody. I'd say take on the article anyway. Look up the things you don't understand. But I think he's right. We're not going to avoid the pain on this one. So in in the words of uh, your, your friends in the military, embrace the suck and move through it. It's a, it's a temporary, though painful stage, but I think that the correction has been a long time coming, and it appears it's, it's on our doorstep. I don't say that to be maudlin. I don't say that to try to get you fearful. Just understand, these are consequences that have been a long time in the making, and they're not going to be avoided. So let's position ourselves as best we can, ride out the correction as best we can. And again, I'm going to hearken to... The more time you spend focused on trying to help the people around you, the better it will go. All right, shifting gears. Here's another one. Watching the great reset unfold around us well, definitely keeps things exciting. Kit Knightley says, genetically edited, edited food might just be the next stage that the architects of this reset have in store for us. This is from OffGuardian.org. Kit Knightley says, the Queen's speech was interesting this year. For all the people outside the U.K. who don't understand what the Queen's speech actually is, it's a farcical state uh, occasion in which the Queen, or in this case, Prince Charles, since Her Majesty is ill or perhaps secretly dead or having mobility issues, makes a speech about what her government intends to do for the next 12 months. Now, of course, the Queen doesn't actually write the speech or have any input on its content or have any control at all over what her government intends to do. She's just a mouthpiece in a big gold hat. It's the U.K. equivalent of the State of the Union, only done in Halloween costumes made out of shiny stolen rocks. But the whole thing is nothing but a grand guilt statement of intent from the British deep state wrapped in mink and draped in metals they never earned. It's a joke, but it's worth listening to. Or if you have a sensitive stomach, you can just read the full text the next day on the U.K. government's website. That's what Kit Knightley does. Now, a lot of the content is, pre- is entirely predictable. More money to Ukraine with a promise the U.K. will lead the way in championing security around the world. More online censorship via the online safety bill. A compulsory register for homeschooled children via the school re- school's reform bill. And there's also mention of securing the Constitution by introducing the U.K.'s own Bill of Rights. In fact, uh, Kit Knightley broke down that particular Trojan horse back in February. 
But Kit says the part I found most interesting is the stated plan to encourage agricultural and scientific innovation at home via the proposed genetic technology or precision breeding bill. The proposed bill, which for some reason is not available through the Parliament website, follows on from DEFRA's announced loosened regulation of genetic research back in January. To quote the National Institute of Agricultural Botany, or NIAB, the legislation would take certain precision breeding techniques out of the scope of restrictive GMO rules. Now, essentially, this would see new gene-edited foods as distinct from old-fashioned genetically modified foods, and therefore not subject to the same rules and oversight. The claimed distinction is that gene editing, as opposed to genetic modification, doesn't introduce DNA from other species. Therefore, in effect, it's merely speeding up what could potentially naturally happen over time. Now, you might think this is all just semantics and such a law will just provide a loophole for all genetically modified foods to simply rebrand themselves as genetically edited foods and thereby avoid regulation. But that's disgustingly cynical and shame on you for even thinking it. <laughs> all in all, this is pretty on-message on stuff and not especially surprising. What's noteworthy is by pure happenstance, I'm sure, it is it appears to con coincide with a renewed push on the GM or genetically modified food front in other countries all over the world. In December 2021, Switzerland added an amendment to its moratorium on GMO crops, permitting the use of certain gene editing techniques. Last month, Egypt announced their new strain of genetically modified wheat. Two days ago, Ethiopia's National Agricultural Biotechnology Research Center announced they'd researched and the country will now be growing genetically modified cotton and maize. And despite Russia's sweeping ban on the cultivation or importing of genetically modified crops, they've nonetheless created a 111 billion ruble project to create up to 30 varieties of genetically edited plants and farm animals. Now, Britain's deregulation of genetically modified food is always described as a post-Brexit move with the EU chided around the world for its precautionary principle on genetically modified crops. And yet, as long ago as last April, the EU was calling for a rethink on GM crops. In fact, just today, European Biotechnology uh, magazine reports the EU Commission has launched its final consultation on the deregulation of new breeding techniques in agriculture. So the questions are, why this and why now? We're seeing a sudden increase in the variety of genetically modified crops available and also a simultaneous push for deregulation of the industry in Western nations. Why would they be doing this now? Well, Kit Knightley says, well, there is a food crisis, or more accurately, they have just created a food crisis. And as the cliched Hegelian dialectic inevitably goes, their manufactured problem is now in need of their contrived solution. So we should expect to see genetic engineering pitched as a solution to our food crisis in the very near future, like yesterday, or indeed two months ago. That's how fast they work now, barely a pretense at concealing the plan, spitting out the answer so fast they make it obvious they knew the question beforehand. We'll come back to Kit Knightley's article here in just a few moments. Again, it's linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back, my fellow wrong thinker. We'll get back to Kit Knightley's article in just a moment. I want to mention lifesavingfood.com, one of my longtime sponsors here on the program, and a great resource if you are, you know, getting serious about not just food storage, but also any other aspect of emergency preparedness, water purification, solar cooking, all that kind of stuff. You would be amazed at the tools and the various resources that are available. Now, look, it's true. The cost of everything is going up, and that includes food storage. But here's the beauty. The money you spend on food storage today has a, is, is money that's going to be well spent because this food storage comes with a 25-year shelf life. You store it properly. You've got 25 years to figure out when you want to use it. And it's just possible sometime within the next 25 years, there might be some, you know, difficult times. Unexpected things come up. Does it make sense? Click on the link I provide in my show notes under lifesavingfood.com. Just take a look. I trust you'll know what to do if you need to do something. All right, back to Kit Knightley's article about the uh, gene-edited food, the next stage of the Great Reset. Kit asks, why would this push for deregulation of, of uh, genetically modified crops or genetically edited crops be taking place right now? And the answer is that, uh, well, a lot of the powers that be have created a food crisis. So we should expect to see them pitching genetic engineering as a solution to this food crisis in the very near future. In fact, he points to March 15th, when the special operation in Ukraine was less than three weeks old. The Times was already headlining, War forces farmers to think about genetically modified crops. And reporting, genetic modification could make Britain's food system less susceptible to geopolitical turmoil. A week later, Verdict published an article titled, Improving Food Self-Sufficiency with Genetically Modified Crops During Geopolitical Crises. And just last week... The Times of Israel asked, can gene editing help farmers satisfy the rising demand for food? Four days ago, the Manila Times published an article, In Times of Food Scarcity, Revisiting Genetically Modified Crops. And a couple of days ago, before the Queen's speech specifically mentioning the gene editing bill, Scotland's Press and Journal ran an opinion piece headlined, Scottish Government Must Lift GM Crop Ban to Ease Cost of Living Crises. Yesterday, the information services company IHS Market published an article on GM regulation in Europe in which they claimed, quote, the Ukraine-Russia conflict has demonstrated the fragility and vulnerability of global and European food supply chains. Around the world, governments in leading agricultural producing countries are now catching up with the United States, both to better legislate gene-edited products as well as differentiate them from the older genetically modified organism technology, and its negative connotations to some consumers, commentators, farmers, retailers, politicians, and lawmakers. And, of course, the Genetic Literacy Project just recently published an article by Ukrainian-Canadian David Zaruk railing against the EU's precautionary principle on GMOs and calling for an embracing of new technology to prevent widespread hunger and increase food sovereignty. And it goes on and on. Oh, and let's not forget climate change, guys. Of course, it's not all about the food crisis. Giving corporate giants free reign to genetically alter all the food we eat will also be good for the planet. They talk about that a lot recently. On February 8th of this year, the University of Bonn published a new study claiming genetic engineering can have a positive effect on the climate. February 24th of this year, the Cornell-based NGO Alliance for Science 
published an article claiming GMOs could shrink Europe's climate footprint, based on the study mentioned above. In response to the Queen's speech, the UK's National Institute of Agriculture and Botany claimed that genetic modification will make farming more sustainable. And in a reminder that we're not just talking about crops, but genetically engineering livestock as well, in February, Deutsche Well suggested that genetically altered climate sheep and eco-pigs could combat global heating. And three weeks ago, Stuff.nz asked simply, can genetic modification save the planet? So the narrative is clearly set. Genetically engineered food will save us all from the food crisis and global warming too, plus anything else they can think of. Now the knives are out for organics, so not content with the semi-constant fluffing of the GM business, the MSM are also turning their guns on organic farming and giving it both barrels, the Wall Street Journal reports. The Ukraine crisis reveals the folly of organic farming. As food prices skyrocket, the world needs to admit it can't live without modern, efficient agriculture. The Telegraph blames organic farming policies for tipping Sri Lanka into bloody chaos. And the Alliance for Science article mentioned above goes out of its way to criticize the EU's pro-organic farm-to-fork plans, claiming organic farming has lower yields and would be associated with increases in global greenhouse gas emissions by causing land-use changes elsewhere. So it looks like uh, the West must stop organic farming to help future food crisis. That's according to Swiss newspaper NZZ M. Sontag. Adding that organic farming is worse for the planet because plowing up fields releases more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Now, we already saw wellness cults accused of peddling anti-vax conspiracy theories last year. This will easily extend to organic farmers and their customers. Also in an interesting, again probably totally accidental parallel, the currently simmering bird flu outbreak has also hit organic and free-range farmers hard with one sponsored Guardian article asking if year-round bird flu could spell the end of free-range eggs. So having seen just how the COVID-19 vaccine program unfolded, it's not hard to see how the pro-genetically modified push will go from here. Genome-edited crops and farm animals are going to become the new settled science. But they'll be sold to the public as cheaper, more nutritious, better for the environment, and good for preventing future pandemics. Yeah, they literally did say that already. And, of course, anyone who resists the push for gene-edited food and or mourns the planned death of organic farming will be accused of questioning the science. Now, just as we saw, uh, COVID skeptics denounced as spreading Russian disinformation despite Russia's willing complicity in the COVID lie, those who argue against genome-edited food will be said to be sharing Russian talking points or doing Putin's work for him, despite Russia being well on board the gene-editing train. Kit Knightley says it all gets very predictable from there. Organic farmers will probably be anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorist Russian spies by the end of summer. This probably explains why Bill Gates was buying up so much farmland last year, too. Interesting. I've got a link to the article, lots of links within the article. If you really want to dig deep into this topic, you have the opportunity to do so. I don't know if you uh, are familiar with the name Randy Weaver. If I said Ruby Ridge, Idaho, that would probably spark a memory for a lot of folks, but it's been 30 years since uh, the federal government uh, killed Randy Weaver's son and his wife and uh, tried to put Randy in prison for life. An Idaho jury, upon hearing the facts of the case, acquitted Randy. 
on just about every charge. The only thing I think he was was actually found guilty of was a failure to appear charge, which it's debatable whether that was really his fault or not, since he was given a wrong court date. His friend Kevin Harris, who uh, was standing trial for murdering a U.S. marshal, was actually acquitted. The shooting was ruled self-defense. Did government ever apologize? Well, not exactly. It did pay Randy and his surviving children a fairly healthy multi-million dollar settlement. And the sad thing here is what most people know about Randy Weaver is whatever they learned through the mainstream media. Oh, well, he was a member of the Aryan Nations. Not true, by the way. He was a white supremacist. Not true. He may have been a separatist in the sense that He really didn't want whatever urban life has to offer. That just wasn't for him. And that's why he had moved his family to Ruby Ridge up in northern Idaho. But there's so much to this story which is conveniently left out. And that's why I'm linking in today's show notes to an article from James Bovard on why Ruby Ridge is not forgotten. And I'm going to ask you to please, if you don't know much about the story, please take a look. And let, uh, let Jim Bovard connect some of these dots for you so that you can see for yourself just what the government did to set in motion this series of events that ended in the deaths of three people and a terrible, you know, miscarriage of justice in, in the sense that, uh, well, at least they kept us safe. No, they didn't. <laughs> they did not. And, and, and we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that they did. You know, the FBI has become more powerful, more dangerous since Ruby Ridge. And the lesson that you can take away from this is Randy Weaver may have been on some people's radar screens as well. He's not a very desirable guy. People I know who met him, I actually knew his, uh, I think it was his nephew, um, said he was a very down-to-earth, very humble guy. Not nearly the, the racist monster that the mainstream media tried to, to paint, but even if he was a racist, mon- racist monster, let's say he was everything that uh, the media tried to portray him as, a one-dimensional cartoon who hated anybody who wasn't his color, it still wouldn't make it right for the feds to do what they did to him and to his family. So I hope Randy Weaver is at peace, safely reunited with his wife and his son, But the important lesson is none of this had to happen. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. Looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I am here to assist you in taking off the chains of mental slavery. In fact, we're really going to get into this in some detail. Find out if you're a victim of mental manipulation. And if you are someone who has been menticided and offer a very convenient 12-step program that can help get you out of the clutches of those who would manipulate you without you even being aware. Now, that doesn't mean you have to believe everything I say. That doesn't mean you even have to agree with anything that I say. My goal here is to just encourage you to think clearly, think independently, and above all, be more certain of who you are and what you stand for than what you're against or what you don't like. 
Got some great sponsors who make this show possible, including HSLAmmo.com. You'll find a convenient link in my show notes taking you right to HSL Ammo's website. I would say take some time and look around there. Not only is ammo a great way to convert money into skill, but it's also a pretty fair store of value. If you understand precious metals, you realize lead, copper, and brass, they're precious metals as too, and that they really hold their value, and they have utility, meaning they will always be worth something to someone. Where to begin? Let's, let's talk about how a lot of folks are looking to the midterm elections in November as a possible turning point from our current downward trajectory. Right, The whole motto of, we're going to build back better. I don't think any of that's happened. <laughs> In fact, if anything, it's just gotten a lot worse. But uh, I know I know that there are plenty of people right now looking to the November midterms as well, but we're going to finally see this red wave come through, and it's going to you know clear all the, the detritus out, and we're going to make sure that everything is back on track. I wish I had that kind of uh, faith. I don't. And it's not that, uh, that I doubt the Republicans and I guess I I do doubt them, but I also doubt the Democrats. Basically, I don't trust politics to fix much of what's wrong. And Victor Davis Hanson has an excellent article. This is from AmericanGreatness.com. Imagine the unimaginable. When revolutionaries undermine the system, earn the antipathy of the people, face looming disaster at the polls, that's when they prove most dangerous, as we're about to see over the next few months. Victor Davis Hanson says Americans are now entering uncharted revolutionary territory, and they may witness things over the next five months that once would have seemed unimaginable. Until the Ukrainian conflict, we'd never witnessed a major land war inside Europe directly involving a nuclear power. In desperation, Russia's impaired and unhinged leader Vladimir Putin now talks trash about the likelihood of a nuclear war. A 79-year-old Joe Biden bellows back that his war-losing nuclear adversary is a murderer, a war criminal, and a butcher who should be removed from power. After years, after a year of politicizing the U.S. military and its self-induced catastrophe in Afghanistan, America has lost its deterrence abroad. China, Iran, North Korea, and Russia are conniving how best to exploit this rare window of global military opportunity. By the way, I'm going to throw this just out as an aside. I know that it's it's our duty, right, to believe that, uh, well, but America stands for the flag and for apple pie, but I took the blinders off a long time ago, and this in no way is saying that what Russia's doing is great and what North Korea and Iran and China have in store, that's all great, too. I'm saying there are no good guys, and that includes our government, and that includes what they have been sending our troops out to do over the last, well, not just 20 years, but, you know, the last 60 or so years. No disrespect to the troops here. They go and they do, you know, what, what they're ordered to do. But the decision makers here in America, I don't know any nice way to tell you. They're not the good guys. They never have been. At least not since not since World War II. They haven't been the good guys. Now, Victor Davis Hansen says the traditional bedrocks of the American system, a stable economy, energy independence, vast surpluses of food, hallowed universities, a professional judiciary, law enforcement, and a credible criminal justice system, all are dissolving. Gas and diesel prices are hitting historic levels, inflation's at a 40-year high, new cars and homes are unaffordable. The necessary remedy of high interest and tight money will be almost as bad as the disease of hyperinflation. There is no southern border. Expect over a million foreign nationals to swarm this summer into the U.S. without audit, without COVID testing or vaccination. None will have any worry of consequences for breaking U.S. immigration law. 
He says police are underfunded and increasingly defunded. District attorneys deliberately release violent criminals without charges. Literally 10,000 people witnessed a deranged man with a knife attack comedian Dave Chappelle on stage at the Hollywood Bowl last week. And the Los Angeles County DA refused to press felony charges. Murder and assault are spiraling. Carjacking and smash and grab thefts are now normal big city events. Crime is now mostly a political matter with ideology, race, and politics determining whether the law is even applied. Supermarket shelves are thinning and meats are now beyond the budgets of millions of Americans. An American president, in a first, casually warns of food shortages. Baby formula has disappeared from many shelves. Politics resembles the violent last days of the Roman Republic. An illegal leak of a possible impending Supreme Court reversal of Roe v. Wade that would allow state voters to set their own abortion laws has created a national hysteria. Never has a White House tacitly approved mobs of protesters showing up at Supreme Court justices' homes to rant and bully them into altering their votes. There's no free speech anymore on campuses. Merit is disappearing. Admissions, hiring, promotion, retention, grading, and advancement are predicted increasingly on mouthing the right orthodoxies or belonging to the proper racial, gender, or ethnic category. And when the new campus commissariat finally finishes absorbing the last redoubts in science, math, engineering, medical, and professional schools, America will slide into permanent mediocrity and irreversible declining standards of living. So Victor Davis Hansen says, what happened? Remember, all these catastrophes are self-induced. They are choices, not fate. The United States has the largest combined coal, gas, and oil deposits in the world. It possesses the know-how to build the safest pipelines and ensure the cleanest energy development on the planet. Inflation was a deliberate Biden choice. He kept printing trillions of dollars for short-term political advantage, incentivizing labor non-participation, and keeping interest rates at historical lows at a time of pent-up global demand. The administration wanted no border. Only that way can politicized, impoverished immigrants repay left-wing undermining of the entire legal immigration system with their fealty at the ballot box. Once esoteric, crackpot academic theories, modern monetary theory, critical legal theory, critical race theory now dominate policymaking in the Biden administration. And the common denominator in all of this is ideology overruling empiricism, common sense, and pragmatism. Ruling elites would rather be politically correct failures and unpopular than politically correct, incorrect rather, successful and popular. Is that not the tired story of left-wing revolutionaries from 18th century France to early 20th century Russia to the contemporary disasters in Cuba and Venezuela? Victor Davis Hanson says the American people reject the calamitous policies of 2021 to 2022. Yet the radical cadres surrounding a cognitively inert Joe Biden still push them through by executive orders, bureaucratic directives, and deliberate cabinet non-performance. Why? The left has no confidence either in constitutional government or common sense. So as the public pushes back, expect at the ground level more doxing, more cancel culture, deplatforming, ministries of disinformation, swarming the private homes of officials they target for bullying, and likely violent demonstrations in our streets this summer. Meanwhile, left-wing elites will do their best to ignore Supreme Court decisions, illegally cancel student debts, and likely, by the fall, issue more COVID lockdowns. They will still dream of packing the court, ending the filibuster, scrapping the Electoral College, adding more states, and flooding the November balloting with hundreds of millions of dollars of dark money from Silicon Valley. 
When revolutionaries undermine the system, earn the antipathy of the people, and face looming disaster at the polls, it's then that they prove most dangerous, as we shall see over the next few months. Obviously, there's some places where uh, Victor Davis Hanson and I will not line up. That's fine. But I think he's, for the most part, quite correct. This next few months are going to be pretty pivotal. And I think it really comes down to more of it's, it's a matter of the people who are in power right now are the people who are um, pretty sure they're going to be facing some severe consequences come November. Look, why did the COVID mandate suddenly just disappear like, like so much fog when the conditions were no longer right? The answer is because the conditions were no longer right because they looked at political polls and went, holy cow, people really hate what we've been forcing on them for the last year and a half. And so the science changed. Yes, well, now we can see that uh, obviously we'll just have to learn to live with COVID. And, you know, that's, that's something that should have been known all along. There were voices that were saying that all along. But the people in power, they don't want to admit they're wrong. They're still doubling down. They're trying to do whatever they were doing. And, and well, let's do it harder. Keep digging. No, dig up. They're terrified that they are going to be wrested from power. Or that power will be wrested from them, I should say. And so I think that does make them very dangerous as to what they'll be willing to condone and what they'll be willing to actually do over the next few months. And the saddest thing to me is, even when the election comes and goes, it still isn't going to solve a lot of the fundamental problems. Those are going to have to be solved at the individual level. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks for reveling in wrong think with me today. It's kind of exhilarating, wouldn't you say? By the way, sewingandquiltingcenter.com is one of my great sponsors. They're located in southern Utah, St. George to be exact. And if you or someone you know loves the sewing arts, well, first of all, you know, you got to know, it's that's that's a legit pursuit of time and 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 hobby and practice and some people do it just for the sheer love of oh i just love to create things and some people do it because they're you know working on uh, masterpieces heritage items quilts and so forth that can be handed down to family personally i think having a sewing machine is a handy thing when you know if you don't have time to go find somebody to do alterations for you you bought a suit or something and you know if you have somebody at home who can actually do that if you know how to do it yourself that's a good thing Here's the cool thing about uh, Sewing and Quilting Center. Not only do they sell everything from the entry-level sewing machines up to the very high-end long-arm quilting machines, but they service what they sell. They have all the supplies that you need to make it all work, and they will train you how to use your machine. Free classes. I'm not kidding. Click on the link. Learn more about them. And if it feels right to you, do business with them. Buy a machine and then put it to good use. That's sewingandquiltingcenter.com. So here's a question for you. How young is too young, or how soon is too soon, to be teaching our kids common sense, to teach them, you know, accountability? Annie Holmquist says they're never too young to learn responsibility. So she asks, how young is too young for a child to be running errands? That question is prompted in large part by the Netflix show Old Enough, which features Japanese preschoolers running errands for their parents. Now, the show appears to be raising American interest, judging from the many articles written about it. Two of those articles, both from NPR, 
caught Annie Holmquist's eye. Now, the first was written by a mother who started sending her four-year-old on errands in hope that the added responsibility would put a stop to the mischief her daughter was getting into. By the way, it worked. The second article featured reader responses to the first article, running the gamut from parents who had succeeded in similar ventures who couldn't imagine, to, to those rather who couldn't imagine leaving their kids alone. Both articles feature a disclaimer from NPR warning that in some localities, allowing children to run errands or go places without adult supervision may violate local laws. Oh, I can only imagine. Now, that disclaimer, she says, likely applies to most of America. Many of us would be aghast at the idea of letting a 10-year-old, much less a 3-year-old, run an errand or do a job for us. But given that other nations seem to allow their children to navigate responsibility at a very early age or a very young age, one has to wonder what our hesitancy is. Where along the way did Americans lose their independent spirit and start to coddle their young, even into adulthood, denying them the opportunity to grow and work and be responsible? One answer to that question lies in the progressivist mentality that has permeated our education system, particularly through children's books. Now, children's book content has changed dramatically in the early part of the 20th century. And author John Taylor Gatto noted in his book, The Underground History of American Education, one of these changes was in how the concept of work was presented. Instead of portraying it as a good thing that children should be encouraged to enter, wholeheartedly and through which they gain independence, the opposite happened. This is a quote from the book. School credentials replace experience as the goal, as the goal book characters work toward. And child labor becomes a, a label of condemnation in spite of its ancient function as the quickest, most reliable way to human independence. The way taken, in fact, by Carnegie, Rockefeller, and many others who were now, quite, who now apparently quite anxious to put a stop to it. End quote. So in these books, children are encouraged not to work at all until their late teen years, sometimes not until their 30s, Gatto wrote. A case for the general superiority of youth working instead of idly sitting around in school confinement is often made prior to 1900, but never heard again in children's books after 1916. Interesting. Annie Holmquist says a century after that first change, we seem to have taken this mentality to a whole new level. For now, many adults not only discourage teens from working, telling them to focus on schooling instead... We also discourage younger kids from being independent and preparing to work in preparation for their launch into the world. We do, not, we do this not only by denying them the responsibility and experience of running errands for adults, but also by not letting them be outside alone to play on their bikes or in the yard. Now, some courageous parents, however, do give their children opportunities to be independent, gradually preparing them for adulthood. The only trouble is... There are busybodies who panic and call Child Protective Services when they see those children out and about practicing independence. So she says, if we're serious about returning common sense to America, then we must move beyond these busybodies and our own fears and start encouraging a society where children are given more responsibility and independence at younger ages. Annie Holmquist says, instead of fretting, we can look for ways to help children expand their horizons. We can encourage other parents to hover less and to let go. We can strike up conversations with our neighbors, telling them how good it is for children to learn independence and asking them to aid us in keeping an eye on our kids from a distance as we teach them to spread their wings. Benjamin Franklin famously said that those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. 
The same holds true regarding our children. If we as adults refuse to let them gradually learn independence and responsibility when they're young, because we fear that doing so would put them in unsafe situations, at least in the eyes of our bubble-wrapped society, then we're just simply preparing those children for a lack of both liberty and safety when they get older. So she says, giving your children more responsibility can be a big step for many parents. So if you're not comfortable with sending your children out of the house on their own, start training them inside the house. If children as young as two, three, or four can run errands in Japan, then why can't American children these same ages make beds, sweep floors, unload the dishwasher, and fold clothes? As they take those responsibilities on, and as you train yourself to let them do so, give your children more freedom in other areas of daily life so they can experience the reward of responsible, independent living. Your fellow citizens will thank you for it one day when your children are some of the few adults who still have the courageous, independent American spirit that will be needed to help pull our country out of the pit it's currently hurling itself into. I'm sorry, if you hear a sound like somebody shaking a paint uh, spray paint can, that rattling noise, that's my brain rattling around as I'm nodding vigorously going, yes, she's right. And I get it. It's, it, you know, it's scary. Well, if I teach my kids to be too independent, why, well, they're not going to need me anymore. Yes, believe it or not, I understand, you know, parents who, who feel that way. But I also think I would much rather have kids who have that ability to, to stand up on their own, to know, to, to actually know that they can do things that require some kind of thought, maybe even require some kind of effort. And here's the kicker. I don't think there's any one-size-fits-all approach. And I certainly don't think, well, we ought to have government experts determine when is it safe to have your kids, you know, clean up dog poop? When is it safe to have them run some muffins next door to the neighbors or whatever? Hey, that's your job as a parent. Because first of all, it's, it's your kid. You have the stewardship there. Not just legally, but I think, you know, in, in the most universal sense possible. God gave you those kids God assisted you in creating those kids. And I think God has, you know, an accountability and stewardship that comes with that that you have to step up to. Nobody's going to love those kids more than you will. So don't turn to the state for for that kind of guidance. Look at your kids. Some are going to be ready for responsibility at a much earlier age. Those, Those kids with old souls, if you don't have one, you probably know somebody who has one. They're kids who just uh, seem to, to embrace responsibility and the ability to, to be trusted at a very, very early age. And there are kids, uh, as the article points out, you know, in, into their 30s that still haven't quite figured it out. But I do like the idea of let them start early. Let them feel the weight of responsibility and and get used to it. And above all, know that they can bear that weight. So when they finally finish, you know, their public schooling and they they move on to to college or whatever, that weight of responsibility doesn't, uh, you know, feel to them like a saddle would on the back of a wild Mustang. I know it sounds like, are you saying we should break our kids early? Kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? But I'm saying, no, help them grow as early as possible. That's what I'm saying. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. 
I mentioned earlier that uh, we're going to take a little bit of time to determine whether or not you and I have been mentally manipulated. Actually, I think I already know how I would answer that question, but I've got a great article I want to share with you from the substack of Margaret Anna Alice. Ten signs that uh, you have, have been a victim of menticide. And it's, this is called a letter to the menticide at a 12-step recovery program. Now, menticide is an old crime against the human mind, but systemized anew, or systematized anew. It's an organized system of psychological intervention and judicial perversion through which a powerful dictator can imprint his own opportunistic thoughts upon the minds of those he plans to use and destroy. Ready-made opinions can be distributed day by day through press, radio, and so on again and again till they reach the nerve cell and implant a fixed pattern of thought in the brain. Consequently, guided public opinion is the result, according to Pavlovian theoreticians, of good propaganda technique and the polls of verification of the temporary successful action of the Pavlovian machinations on the mind. This is a quote from Just Mirlu and the book The Rape of the Mind. So, if you're a victim of menticide, based on that definition, first and foremost, you don't know it. That's the first sign. It's not going to be obvious to you that, hey, I'm being manipulated. <laughs> nope. That's, that's what makes it so... Uh, that's what makes it so evil. It's subtle. But here are nine more signs that you can use to identify whether you're suffering from this reversible condition. You watch television. You read newspapers and magazines. You listen to the radio. Uh-oh. <laughs> you absorb social, social media immersion campaigns. You follow popular culture. Here's a big one. You support the current thing. <laughs> Here's a great quote, by the way, from Juice Demirlo, and again, the book, The Rape of the Mind. The specialist in the art of persuasion and the molding of public sentiment may try to knead man's mental dough with all the tools of communication available to them. Pamphlets, speeches, posters, billboards, radio programs, and TV shows. They may water down the spontaneity and creativity of thoughts and ideas into sterile and, and uh, streamlined cliches that direct our thoughts even though we have the illusion of being original and individual. There's a great cartoon that, that backs this up. It shows a person with a mask over their face, and it's kind of a cross-section of their brain. And these are the different parts of the brain. Let's see, these are, and they're all cliches. Trust the science. Masks work. Women don't exist. My government loves me. There's a climate emergency. Yay, abortion. I hate myself. Everything's Putin's fault. Heart attacks are normal. Get boosted now. I've got COVID again. Freedom is selfish. Yep, that sounds, sounds about right. Sign number seven, that you've been menticided. You know with dogmatic certainty that you're right about everything you believe, even though you've never examined those beliefs and didn't come up with them through your own inquisitive research, critical thinking, and rigorous analysis. Number eight, you repeat thought-terminating cliches like trust the science to mollify your cognitive dissonance. As part of this kamikaze leap of faith, you trust everything you shouldn't trust, including governments with chronic histories of lying to, propagandizing, terrorizing, experimenting on, surveilling, censoring, torturing, interning, and murdering its own citizens. 
Also, corporations continually found guilty of homicide, harm, fraud, corruption, unethical practices, bribery, coercion, intimidation, addiction-inflicting, and study-rigging. And organizations, regulatory agencies, tyrants, politicians, self-aggrandizing experts, compromised scientists, behavioral psychologists, public opinion engineers, smear merchants, ghost writers, big tech gatekeepers, influencers, pushers, fact chokers, and other colluders enlisted to control the narrative to protect the power and profits of the first couple. (laughs) Number nine, you distrust everyone the liars tell you to distrust, namely those disproving their lies such as ethical scientists or physicians, whistleblowers, data analysts, and other truth-tellers exposing corruption, tyranny, human rights abuses, injury, and democide. You also reject primary sources and clear-eyed thinkers unpolluted by conflicts of interest, such as independent journalists, independent journalists rather, on-the-ground reporters, dissident writers, dazzlingly keen-witted analysts, and real human beings who are documenting the objective reality being boulderized by legacy sources. And you likely reject family, friends, and other caring people who are trying to rescue you from the cult you've been inculcated into. Now, in The Rape of the Mind, Juiced Mirlu explains why all three of these groups must be vilified, censored, libeled, and silenced. Quote, totalitarian is constantly on the alert for social sinners, the critics of the system. The accusation of dissent is the equivalent to to conviction in the public eye. Insinuation, calumny, and denunciation are staples of the totalitarian strategy. The entire nation is dedicated to the proposition that every man is a potential enemy of the regime. Free men in a free society must learn to not only recognize this stealthy attack on mental integrity and fight it, but must learn also that what there is inside man's mind that makes him vulnerable to this attack, what it is that makes him in many cases actually long for a way out of the responsibilities that Republican democracy and maturity place on him. This means that the more familiar people are with the concepts of thought control and menticide, the more they understand the nature of the propaganda barrage directed against them, the more inner resistance they can put up. Now, Margaret Anna Alice says, look, if you recognize any of the above signs in yourself, don't worry. Just follow this 12-step recovery program. You'll be thinking clearly, logically, and rationally, and independently in no time. So I'm just going to walk you briefly through the 12 steps here. We won't go into a lot of detail. I'd like you to read the article, which, by the way, I have to point out, she, she hyperlinks to so many different articles to back up and substantiate what she's saying here. So these are, I mean, there's a lot of research and a lot of time and effort went into writing this. It's not just, oh, I'll just sit down and write whatever comes to mind. She put the work in. So the first step of this 12-step program, number one, acknowledge that you have been deceived. And there's no shame in this. It's a sign of wisdom, humility, and growth to recognize your bamboozlement and bravely choose to escape the anesthetizing ether of your neurological programming. So say out loud, my name is Brian, and I am a victim of menticide. I am ready to reclaim my mind and take ownership of my knowledge. Now, of course, your name is probably not Brian, but I'm just demonstrating this for you. Step number two, turn off the television. Canceling cable won't just save you money in these inflationary times, and by the way, that's not a good thing, despite what the gaslighters say, unless you like wallpapering or wheelbarrowing around with your hyperinflated currency for exercise, but this will cut your umbilical cord too, 
the hypnosis machine. So get ready to wake up to the real world. Stop reading magazines and newspapers. That's number three. New York Times, Rolling Stone, Washington Post, these are the trustworthy sources they tell you they are. While there may have been a sliver of integrity in earlier generations of these institutions, they are now full-time corporate harlots and government disinformationists. And if on the rare occasion they contain a fact-based story, it's only because it serves the narrative or the reality has become too embarrassingly blatant to ignore. Step number four, stop listening to NPR and other legacy radio stations. Like all other mainstream sources, these entities have lost whatever credibility they once possessed and have become ideological indoctrination outlets. If you still want to listen to the radio, classical music is your safest bet, followed by vintage music or contemporary music without lyrics, unless they're awakening lyrics like Lucas Lyons' 1984 or Five Time August's I Will Not Be Leaving Quietly. But you're not likely to find any of those on corporate-sponsored radio. Number five, eliminate or minimize the time you spend on social media. It's a pacifier. Once you get past the anxiety of living without it, you should start to feel lighter, freer, and more alert to existence itself. Number six, break out of the big tech bubble. Unshackle your mind and ditch Google for engines like Presearch, Quant, Brave, or Swiss Cows. Use only free free speech-friendly programs like Rumble or Odyssey or BitChute or Brighteon or Brand New Tube. Step number seven, cultivate a beginner's mind. Reignite your curiosity. Shed your cognitive biases, ideological predilections, and keep preconceived notions. Strive to distinguish your own original thoughts from those that have been implanted. Number eight, watch interviews, lectures, panel discussions, and educational content of... Uh, from doctors and scientists of integrity. In other words, the ones that the spin doctors tell you to fear. Step number nine, choose your entertainment judiciously. That should be uh, pretty self-explanatory. Number 10, read. Read lots and lots and lots of books. Step number 11, build immunity to mind control. That's part of what this show is about, by the way. And number 12, escape your Stockholm Syndrome. Flee the cult of safety for the freedom of mind, body, and soul, and transform from victim to victor. You're going to love this article. It's linked in today's show notes. Check it out for yourself at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Man, I just I can't say enough good stuff about that, uh, that article I shared in the last segment from Margaret Anna Alice through The Looking Glass. Menticide. Yes, all of us have been victims of menticide. All of us are recovering at some level. And this means, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to make it sound like we're all victims. We're all helpless because we're not. But if you have been uh, if you have been helped out of the swamp of misinformation, if you have found your way towards solid ground and a better vantage point from which you can see and and live the truth, do you not feel a little bit of a responsibility to help the people who are a few steps behind you? So in that sense, I look, I've I, I'm I'm not speaking from experience here, so forgive me if I'm getting something wrong. But um, it seems to me one of the things that makes twelve step programs really effective 
is that uh, you'll find sponsors within them, people who are willing to be there for others to help them through the process, having been through it themselves. Essentially, they're mentoring. I guess I'm encouraging you, look for those opportunities you have to help, to be a sponsor. When someone is, is struggling or someone is has questions or whatever, you can be the person that they would be willing to turn to. And that means you got to be gentle. That means you, you don't need to rub their noses in it like some puppy that piddled on the carpet. You just need to recognize they're doing their best, help them to be strong, help them to recognize what they need to do, and be grateful that there were people in place to help you, you know, when it was your turn. Okay, moving on. Tell me if this sounds familiar. The political class is locked into a strategy that absolutely cannot work, but they cannot reverse course. I know, you're like, well, okay, take a pick. What, choose, which, which situation are you talking about? I got a great article here from the Z-Man about how Ukraine is about to become NATO's Vietnam. Now, I'm going to warn you, this is going to cause some cognitive dissonance for some folks. If it's too much, then I would say step away, turn me off, don't, you know, don't let it torment you. But I think there's some good food for thought here. At the very least, it's worth consideration. What you do with that information ultimately is up to you. The Z-Man says, with the overwhelming support of both parties, Congress just passed another military aid package to Ukraine. Now, as of the time that I'm sharing this with you, um, Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, had actually stopped the progress of that bill. So uh, this is for $40 billion in weapons, writes the Z-Man. But like most things that come from Congress, it has other items. For instance, there's money to resettle Afghans into your neighborhood and money for friends of the empire. And this package is on top of similar packages passed this year. And the the passage of Lend-Lease, which will let the neocons managing Biden flood Ukraine with weapons. Now, unlike prior aid bills, only the dullest, most insulated members of Congress were out in front of the cameras taking credit for it. That means it was the leadership of both parties and select lifers with no connection to their home state. Most were nowhere to be found, as they suspect their vote was not a great career move. A few Republicans opposed the bill and made sure to let everyone know it. But this latest package has the feel of last call at a party that should have ended a long time ago. Now, the Z-Man says the aid package, of course, will have no impact on the war. The situation is settled into a decidedly one-sided affair. The Russians pound the Ukrainians with missiles, artillery, and rocket fire. The Ukrainians lack the ability to do much about it other than hunker down in their fortifications and hope for the best. Artillery shells are cheap, so the Russians are happy to rain steel on Ukrainian positions, slowly grinding them down till one day the army collapses. Now, this was not what the State Department promised. By now, the Russian economy was supposed to be collapsed, the army in chaotic retreat, and Putin awaiting execution by the revolutionary mobs. That was what the planners promised the Biden administration, who made the same promise to NATO and the European Union. The plan was to make sure the Ukrainians could hold out for a few months. The magic of the economic shock and awe campaign would do the heavy work against Russia. Well, not only have none of the promises materialized, but it's becoming clear that the war against Russia was poorly conceived and executed. It has had little impact on the Russians, but the West is taking it on the chin. Energy costs in part of Europe are 30% higher than the start of the war. Food prices are rocketing upward with the promise of more to come later this year. Then there's the 10 million or so Ukrainian refugees that are camped out in various parts of Europe. 
reason should lead Washington and its various puppet governments in Europe to reconsider the war in Ukraine. Now, this E-man says no one cares about Ukraine, but the point of this war was to harm Russia, maybe even bring about regime change. The payoff would then be easy access to Russian natural resources. The West would get cheap energy from Russia as its war booty. And with that off the table, logic says it's time to rethink the strategy and maybe cut a deal with Russia. On top of the geopolitical blinders, the plan also seems to have been remarkably tone-deaf with regards to domestic audiences. The massive public relations campaign at the start of the war worked on the dullards who always fall for these things. But a large minority remains skeptical. Having been conned by the COVID swindle, many people are simply unwilling to accept anything from the media now. This is actually good news. A a good 40% of the public in the West is now permanently skeptical. The economic cost of this war is bringing the politics of the war back to the usual ground that favors the skeptics. In the United States, there's a long list of things that are not working and could use government attention. The southern border is the most obvious example, but leaders of both parties will call you a bigot and demand the FBI investigate you if you mention it. Ukraine is looking like another boondoggle to avoid addressing domestic concerns. And a similar problem is turning up, turning up in Europe. The deranged dingbat installed as the head of the EU, Ursula von der Leyen, has been trying to engineer a boycott of Russian energy products, but that plan has collapsed. The stated reason was that the member nations needed time to find new energy sources, but the real reason is the mood in Europe is darkening as reality settles in with the puppet governments. They have little power, but they are still subject to popular revolt. So the question that's starting to circulate around Western capitals is if there is an off-ramp for this growing disaster. Ideally, the European Union would be tasked with engaging the Russians in high-level talks to put an end to the war. Everyone knows what the Russians want as they have made their position clear. Zelensky will have to accept the deal the U.A. makes as he is just an actor hired to play a role. He and his co-stars have already been granted British passports. But the problem is Washington and many EU leaders have branded Putin a war criminal and declared there can never be a deal with Russia. So the problem is obvious. If you declare someone evil and then turn around and make a deal with that person, now you are in league with evil. Washington has been demanding regime change in Russia, calling on locals to assassinate him if necessary. Well, it's safe to assume the Russians are not going to be overly generous in negotiations. And there's also the greater problem of the situation on the ground. Putin is the moderate in the Russian political elite. The military wanted to vaporize the Ukrainian strongholds with air power, but Putin insisted on the slow approach. Now that success on the ground is guaranteed, those hardliners are not going to go along with a deal that does not get the Russians more than they wanted before the war. They will demand the south and east of Ukraine as a reward for their support. So what's shaping up for the West, particularly America, is a modern version of the Vietnam conflict in the 1970s. The political class is locked into a strategy that cannot work, but they cannot reverse course. They believe their only option is to keep doing the same thing despite the results. And at the same time, the public is becoming quickly skeptical of the enterprise, but unable to find a political outlet for it. That makes for a very unstable political solution. Now, the big difference between Ukraine and Vietnam is that America has not committed troops to the war. On the other hand, this is the age of privatization of government policy, which means there are private military contractors operating in Ukraine being paid by the Pentagon. It will not be long before the extent of this becomes clear as foreign fighters are captured on the battlefield. 
Come on, Vietnam started with loads of advisors initially and then led to troops on the ground. The other difference is that in the 1970s, there were realists in the political class who understood the problem. Nixon was able to craft a way out of Vietnam, even though it cost him his presidency. The political class in the 1970s was also much more in touch with the general public than it is today. Most of Washington is so deranged, they now think it's good politics to mock the baby formula fortage as Putin propaganda. No one in the 1970s, Washington, was this demented or obtuse. So this new cancer on the body politic promises to be much more aggressive, says the Z-Man, because the body is much weaker. The public is atomized, cynical, and exhausted by years of revolution from the top. And of course, the demographics are much different. The millions of paperwork Americans created over the last 30 years lack the human capital to survive the required surgery. The political class is now devoid of anyone who cares enough about the country to champion the necessary reforms. In another example that shows the universe has a sense of humor, baby boomer politics were formed in the anti-war protests of the 1960s. The end, of, the end phase of baby boomer politics will now be determined by the pro-war policies of the boomers. Ironic, the people who cut their teeth shouting baby killer at men in uniform are now baby killers demanding that young men put on a uniform and fight a, por- fight a pointless war of choice. The baby boomer generation of politicians have become the thing they hated. What a great article from the Z-Man. Check it out. It's in the show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show.